fantastic book. Simply groundbreaking. I think it's very important. Best book I've read. Extremely uh, interesting. Absolutely stupendous. Fun to read. Very well researched. Just phenomenal. Very profound. episode five of the Asian Aspiration, the podcast. Oh my goodness, we made it to five already. Yay, that's like halfway through. That's that's halfway through. <laughs> I am your host, Marina Well, and today we'll be continuing in our series of podcasts looking into Asia's lessons and what Mother Africa could learn. Today we'll be exploring the question and role of aid and development in the development experiences of Asia and Africa. Focusing particularly on official development assistance, we will explore why it does not appear to have yielded much results in Africa for various reasons. Before we start, of course, let me just put the disclaimer out there. We are not here to bash aid. Um, we are here to explore and learn about Speak its for role. yourself. I love bashing aid. Actually, um, I just yesterday, I saw that the World Bank has brought out a very controversial paper. No way. What which actually I? led to the resigning of its lead economist. What? Go and check this out. So they no. just released a paper that shows, which is, was, was, has been delayed by a year, um, which shows that every time the World Bank pays out a grant to an African country, funds going into offshore accounts from that country increases by between 7 and 15 percent. No. Yep. Oh my goodness. So that's aid for you. (laughs) As you were. (laughs) Guys, ignore Emily. Not really, but also a little bit. We're here to explore and learn about the role it plays. And I can tell you there are some surprises in there, so stay tuned. There's a lot of useful and insightful context, so let's get straight into it. Today in our studios, we have the lovely, talented, multifaceted, super intelligent Stop. Emily Van here with us. Stop. Emily, how are you doing? <laughs> Embarrassed, thank you. <laughs> All right, now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's go straight into it. So the role of aid is not one we're new to, right? But I think you present quite a compelling view um, with a comparison to Asia. Can you share a little bit about that? So in our book, The Asian Aspiration, Mm -hmm. we write that Africa shouldn't be a cheap date. Mm -hmm. And that's the lesson that we learned in Asia. We spent a lot of time, especially in Vietnam, looking at this question. Um, Vietnam, because... Viet- because Vietnam used to be the poster child of aid yeah. in the world. And, and this is a time before we might have been, you know, we were quite yeah, young yeah, in the yeah, 90s. Yeah. But in the 90s, Vietnam received um, a, an astronomical slice of the world's aid. Everyone right. wanted to have a part of Vietnam's success. And when we, when we investigated this and we asked the question widely, why they were so successful in utilizing this aid, mm-hmm. the answer that came back was that they knew how to work with donors. They set the agenda. They called the shots. Mm-hmm. And in Africa, um, I think many people would agree that we haven't been as successful in that. We tend to be um, recipients of aid rather than actors participants, of participants. Yeah. yeah? Um, and that's that's a big part of why it's aid is so unsuccessful mm. in Africa. So we write about what Africa could do differently, mm. and we spoke to a lot of experts about this. Um, and we're going to hear from some of them later in this episode as well. Yeah. 
But basically, Africa just needs to be better at setting the agenda, mm-hmm. generally. You majored in development, <laughs> so this is more your area than mine, I'm sure. Um, but, but you know the whole controversy around the Washington Consensus and how Africa was kind of forced to take on a lot of... Um, a lot of ref- actually, a lot of African countries had to undertake quite a number of reforms that um, were useful marginally, or some countries maybe more so than others, but had a lot of negative effects on right social aspects, or with education, with healthcare, yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Most of them took major sort of cuts, and that hurt a lot of economies. And it was a it was a one size fits all approach, exactly, right? which was the wrongest thing. It's like thing people you can in do. Washington calling the shots and saying. If you don't do this, much like the austerity measures we now see in other parts of the world, but do this or you don't get the money. Exactly. And, then, and, and that doesn't benefit anyone. So I think we've come to a time. Well, some people. Oh, yeah. And sort of before we get into the next session, I think some of the useful things I sort of picked up um, from... Uh, some of the experts that you had the chance to interview, really, and also from the book, uh, which I recommend everyone reads, is that really the difference, um, and it's a bit of a generalization, but the difference was that they really, the Asian countries or successful Asian countries really knew how to use aid better, right, than we have on this side of the world. I think I'm going to tell a little anecdote here. Um, So in Vietnam, like I said, we really explored this question quite deeply. And one example of of just how successful they used aid is they got a massive grant of a few million, I'm bad with numbers, remembering <laughs> numbers, from Japan. Japan, coincidentally, was a big part of the development through aid story on the Asian continent. Still mm. is. It's one of the biggest donors in the area. Going in and, Africa as well. Yeah. But what makes it special is that, and we write about this as well, Japan was like a big brother for, for many developing Asian countries. Mm. Um, it wasn't the West coming in like we see in Africa. It was an Asian country who one of their made own. it big, one of their own, who was very generous with their aid. So mm. in Vietnam, Japan gave a lot of aid and it was to build a bridge in Hanoi because Hanoi was pretty much broken down after the war. And they gave a lot of money to build this friendship um, friendship bridge. Now, I can just imagine what would have happened if this was in Africa. We already have pictures in our heads of a friendship bridge and Russians, I don't know, yeah, you're laughing. But um, and but what, what happened is that they built this bridge in Hanoi, crossing the river, and they had so much money left over from, you know, there frugal... There was money left yeah, over. <laughs> from frugal spending that they built another bridge. <laughs> and that just illustrates that if you use aid money well, not only does it stretch and you can do more with it, but you're more likely to get more. That, no, that's a really, really good point. It's really the idea of using aid better. And also, like one of the things um, I picked up was that aid was used right to complement rather than to sort of replace internal initiatives around Absolutely. economic growth. Yeah. And I find that to be really interesting. Right? For a lot of Asian countries, they didn't really have much of another option, unlike some African countries where we maybe could rely on some yeah, gold and other things. Yeah, we have some oil. <laughs> we, have, we have some backup plans. You yeah. know? And that, that really is a big driver of aid misspending mm. um it's that we we don't consider aid as our only option as some asian countries had to vietnam especially after the war um we think aid is something that's going to keep coming yep um but meanwhile it's okay because we do have our resource money are also coming in mm-hmm. 
but it's, the tap is drying up because people are starting to pay a bit more attention to mm-hmm. what where it's going, what it's being used for, and the outcomes of that. But anyway, that's another discussion. All right. Thank you, Emily, for joining us. As always, it's a pleasure to have you here. I'm, st- I'm going to stay. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> All right. So thinking further about the topic, we caught up with President Bai Koroma a couple of months ago, and here's what he had to share about the use of aid on the continent. To some extent, in the circumstances uh, that, for example, my country came from when we emerged from war with limited resources, limited expertise, uh, there was uh, a need for international aid. There was a need for support to start the building up of our infrastructure. Uh, when we also had the Ebola outbreak, there was a dear need for international support because uh, Ebola was new to us. Uh, we were just coming from war. We had limited health infrastructure to respond appropriately. So under the circumstances, it came in quite handy, and I think it helped in uh, uh, fighting back Ebola. It helped in building the infrastructure that was required. Uh, On the other hand, um, there were moments when it was uh, uh, competing with uh, uh, government in terms of delivery of services. Uh, The NGOs, the donor community in executing uh, their uh, aid support created parallel institutions instead of supporting a government institution or integrating their aid into the government agenda. So there was a kind of uh, duplicity uh, in the execution, and uh, also there are moments when um, NGOs and other uh, agencies executing the aid did not quite understand the local culture, did not quite understand the local requirements, so it was kind of a bit wasteful. Uh, so under the circumstances there was uh, a need to uh, review uh, the, the, uh, again how aid was, uh, you know, distributed and how it was implemented within the communities and also in our efforts to increase the penetration. When asked whether a dependence on aid has led to perhaps laziness when it comes to national development and what the biggest roadblocks in development have been, we'll hear about the need to capitalize on our comparative advantages and take trade seriously. Let's listen in again to President Koroma. Aid has, um, you know, supported the mentality of uh, wait until you are given what is required. Uh, I think uh, that has to change. Uh, That has had a negative effect. Uh, We have to look at trade, 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 rather than aid in moving forward. Up next, we spoke to Moketsi Majoro, Finance Minister of Lesotho, whom we also met up with a couple months ago. In addressing the role of aid in his country, Lesotho, we learned about some of the operational challenges with chaperoning aid. I find this quite interesting. But I think that the, the lesson for Lesotho, even for countries that have had significant aid in the past, uh, is that 
you cannot substitute, aid cannot substitute away your internal drive to develop and to industrialize your own country. So aid, uh, for it to work well, the, the state must be stronger, must have a, a considerable capacity to uh, chaperone and direct where aid is going. Uh, but in the end, still, even all that, uh, nothing is going to substitute the domestic mobilization, not only in terms of savings, but in terms of intellect, uh, entrepreneurial focus of where aid must uh, be channeled to and, and uh, where the economy must be driven to. And finally, to cap this discussion, we spoke with Jordan Ryan, whom you've heard from previously in a couple of episodes, actually. Um, in this audio, he shares some ideas about what donors can learn from Asia and help in Africa when it comes to achieving development. I think donors can look at the example that's been provided by Asia, especially in the book that shows the examples uh, where the, a number of countries of Asia have really focused on uh, the development agenda, the development needs of their country. They've articulated those needs uh, in statements, plans, uh, opportunities, and have insisted that donors align behind those plans, that resources then are pooled together uh, for a national purpose. Uh, how can this apply to Africa, to countries in Africa? Uh, first, uh, don't allow donors to do anything they want to do, that the idea that they work together in partnership uh, with the national authority and more importantly with the people of that country uh, to really focus on the development needs of what can be done to either achieve the sustainable development goals or move uh, to eradicate poverty in country. Uh, that way that the resources from taxpayers in developing and developed countries can be used effectively uh, to make sure that some of these things that are needed to be done uh, get done as quickly as possible. You know what my favorite part of that was, actually? No, when tell he, me. <laughs> when he said, well, first, don't allow donors to do anything they want to do. That's like a good so ouchie. True. It's a, and it comes back to what you best. said. Yeah. Exactly. It's just like you set their agenda, not them. And I find that to be super, super interesting. Um, but one thing that was quite central with all those clips, um, I would say, is really the need for governments to take some ownership when it comes to aid and also to lay out their priorities such that aid can easily be funneled into areas of need. It's obviously not that simple but if you think about it it also kind of is yeah. um the point i would say is that aid is not all bad well it's <laughs> aid is not bad or good it's it's agnostic exactly um it's really the ability and willingness willingness to use it for the right purposes that determines the outcome aid has been used better in other places and that's one thing the likes of vietnam teaches as emily mentioned before absolutely at, at this point I want to ask a question from our resident development expert. Wow. <laughs> um, is, is the time for aid maybe moving on? Is it, is it passing? We've seen internationally aid flows reducing dramatically mm. over the last decade or so. It's not, it's not as hot as it used to be. Development agencies are cutting down on their staff. Um, and, and, you know, compared to bigger... Uh, measures of influence such as trade mm. particularly aid is really fading in comparison do you think this is fair to say 
I think the thing with I wouldn't say there should be an absolute stop to aid at the moment, right? Because it serves its purpose, a quite useful one to be fair. And I also like the, uh, I like, and I'm saying that very cautiously, the dynamic of having sort of China play in here. Um, it's not always the greatest, but on, in some instances, at or least in some it spice, countries, spices it up a right, bit. Right, it spices things up a bit, but also they bring this sort of aid for brick and mortar type of infrastructure development, yeah. and that has been quite useful. Although, as a continent, many of our countries need to figure out the financing model for these things because some people yeah. are getting in some trouble with and this. And that's a that's a good point. Sorry to interrupt you. There. No, okay. um, but financing models mm-hmm. isn't that. Um, I'm I'm a staunch uh, supporter of this view, but I want to hear your thoughts. Um, shouldn't we be looking at more creative financing models and, and letting go of the, the aid model, which if I can call it a model, shouldn't we be looking at more developing financing, social um, social bonds, you know, um, development bonds, which has seen a little bit of a spike in recent years, but it's just a different way of taking ownership of money from from external sources right no definitely i agree with you on that and we really do need to consider more creative models right or more innovative ways of financing different projects and things of the such but i also think that to some extent it's still also aid right it's just finding different and more innovative or more creative ways of doing things right so we're still saying the same thing we are treating trying to figure out how to do it better than we've done it in the past okay so i do think that sort of the getting money for things is not entirely a bad thing especially when it comes to trying to develop certain capabilities buildings for these institutions of good governance those tend to get a bit of a mixed rap but they are important in a lot of a lot of these places because one of the things about the asian success is that some of the existence of some of these institutions right and this idea of meritocracy um, and their technocratic model of doing things we need to have a basis of doing these things and it's a little difficult to have the incentive for people to do that now and it's, it's a little bit of a tricky thing to say but it could be an incentive right to nudge people to do things the right way to set yeah. these things up so i think that the idea of aid and finding more innovative or creative financing models are sort of similar conversations i guess it's not the same conversation what's the expression different sides of a coin but it's all part of trying to figure out how do we do this better because i would i would steer clear at this point of saying that you know aid is not relevant aid should be cut off okay yeah i think another important part of this same conversation um is exactly what you just mentioned about um you know using aid as a way to incentivize better institutions etc That's not what we're seeing at the moment. I worry that we're heading into a situation where we've got extreme competition between China, Russia, and your traditional Western donors, mm-hmm. where it's not about the competitions anymore. It's about who is giving out the easiest money. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and that's really a worrying place to be. As much as I support um, you know, uh, national autonomy and countries being able to do whatever they want with the money they get within limits mm-hmm. um, we can't have we, we can't have our traditional donors avoiding setting um, conditions mm-hmm. especially when it comes to promoting <clears throat> a fair elections um, which should be a valid um, condition for aid mm-hmm. I just think that we need things to work from two sides mm-hmm. at the one on the one hand we need donors to be smarter and better in the conditions they set mm-hmm. you know more tailor-made to countries settings but also more tailor-made to what 
is necessary, such as free and fair elections. Um, on the other hand, we need African leaders to play a much more active role in setting the agenda for what the aid should be used for. Mm -hmm. And this also applies to environmental standards. Um, we often have this conversation, maybe we'll get back to it and talk about China a bit more, but whose responsibility is it to set environmental standards on the continent? Should Chinese companies who come in, or donors or whoever, should they be responsible for setting environmental standards and up upholding them, or should it be imposed from African governments? And I tend to believe it should be it should be African governments who set the... Because they don't know Africa like we do. Yeah. At least the countries. be making the rules. That's that for now. At this point, let me insert a shameless plug. Um, you really do need to read the book in case you haven't heard me say it before, a thousand times before. <laughs> Check the description box for a link to order. Um, get all this goodness. 2020 is the year of learning. So let's all learn together. So what was your most shocking discovery from traveling Asia? Tell us something we don't know. I'm going to tell the vegetarian story. <laughs> yes, please. Are you ready for it? I love it. So in Vietnam, um, there's in Hanoi, there's a, a, there's a street called the Train Street, where this rickety old train, which we actually took, um, which is called the Reunification Express, mm. drives in between a street of houses. And it's insane. Like I'll, uh, You should really check this out. Check some photos and videos out of it. Um, you should really check out check out some photos and videos of this. So there's literally, I think, a space of about 30 centimeters between the edge of the train and the edge of some people's houses. Oh my goodness. We took some beautiful footage there. But anyway, I was standing on, this, on these train tracks and I couldn't figure out what time the train was coming because I really wanted <laughs> to see it. And there was a policeman standing there and I asked him in English, um, sorry, sir, do you know when the train comes? And he didn't understand. So I did what I'd normally do. I took out my Google Translate app, typed in um, what time is the train coming and let, it, let my app translate it to Vietnamese and showed it to him and he read it. And then he, understanding what I mean, um, took my phone, typed in his answer, pushed translate and then handed it back to me. Now, just for some context, Vietnamese is full of... Um, different accents mm. so the language is it's very much like French um, and depending on the accent you use a word can have a very different, different meaning yeah. there's a funny story here which I'll also get to now um, but anyway so he something got very lost in translation I don't know in which direction but when I took back my phone the answer was me too I want to start a vegetarian diet <laughs> what how did you get there I have no idea but it was the the most beautiful irony because being vegetarian myself yeah, that's the funny part you are vegetarian i am vegetarian and me too i was having a hard time <laughs> mr policeman sir it's it was not easy so there you have it um just another quick funny story about vietnamese and lost in translation um and it's about um robert mcnamara um who was the secretary of defense for the states during um the vietnam war and at one point he was making a speech in saigon and he didn't realize how tonal the Vietnamese language is and how a meaning of a word can change completely depending on where you put your accent and <laughs> how you pronounce disaster. it. You know what's coming. And so he tried to say something like um, Vietnam success or, you know, some kind of a, a rhetorical um, uplifting mm. thing. Um, this is towards the end of the war. And instead of that, he said something. He leaned over to the microphone and he said something um, 
which had the crowd in stitches. Oh my goodness. Um, practically disintegrating <laughs> of laughter. Um, because what he was saying was, the little duck, he wants to lie down. Oh, <laughs> All too soon, we've come to the end of this week's insightful session on the role and record of aid in Asia and Africa. Oh, exciting news for us, I guess. Next week, there will be no episode, um, but that's a good thing. Don't panic. We will be launching the book at a series of events this week, and we would like to bring you in into all of that. So do stay tuned and follow our social media pages for all the exciting places we will be. And we'll be back in two weeks with an episode on the much-debated topic of China and Africa. I'm certainly excited. I know it's Emily's favorite and I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. As usual, subscribe and follow our social media pages to stay up to date. And please do grab a copy of the book. You like it. And with that, it's a wrap. Catch you next week. Bye. Bye.